Welcome to the Center for New American Security's National Security Startups podcast series, hosted by Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program, Ben Fitzgerald. Welcome, everyone. On today's National Security Startups podcast, we're joined by Ted Schlein, a partner at the well-known venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins Caulfield Byers. Uh, Ted has been at Kleiner Perkins for just over 20 years. He was an early employee at Symantec back in the day. Um, he has also been involved in a large number of investments, including Endgame, uh, led by a friend of the show, Nate Fick, the highly regarded cybersecurity firm Mandiant, which has now been acquired by FireEye, and IronNet, which has been led, which is led by the former director of the NSA and Cyber Command, uh, General Alexander. In addition to the to, to that, um, Ted has spent time work is currently on the board of Incutel and has been involved in various forms collaborating with the Department of Defense over a number of years. Ted, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I think we may as well just jump straight in. Um, a lot of your uh, investment portfolio um, falls in, in the sort of uh, broad, broad category of cybersecurity. I'd just be interested in your thoughts on where that marketplace is today and where you think it's headed. Um, well, it's you know it's been an interesting market to be a part of and watch for I guess now it's been thirty years for me between Symantec and as a venture capitalist and I'd say some of the 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 big issues that are changing are when I first got started most of the 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 bad guys and what they were doing kind of were annoyances and might be viewed as sort of Tactical. They might have cost the company a little bit of money here and there. They might have shut down a system here and there, and it, and it was more of a, a, a pain. Now uh, the breaches and therefore the risks associated with them are so strategic and amazingly costly, either for reputation purposes or true shareholder value, uh, that the 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 level of sophistication of both the uh, the attacker and therefore the defense is necessary has just gone up uh, a huge amount. And so as a result, you see a lot of investment in the space uh, to try and keep up with that because the stakes are so much higher. Um, and as I pointed out, uh, the bad guys are very well funded and uh, they're very good. Um, and uh, you know, no, no, there's, you know, no one wants to be less safe than they, than they could be. Uh, and so uh, the investment environment, as, as you asked, has been uh, extremely robust, and I think it's going to continue in, in that manner for, uh, for many years. That's interesting. So um, fr from your perspective, what, what are the most interesting parts of the cybersecurity marketplace, either um, new technologies or new uh, business opportunities or, or even market dynamics in terms of consolidation or something as this uh, industry is, is maturing? Um, well, you, I, I always look at the kind of the fundamental psychological shifts that have taken place and therefore leads to opportunity. And um, if, you, if you think about it, there, there were a few of us about, I don't know, five, seven years ago that uh, used to go around saying, hey, look, there's two kinds of companies in the world, right? Those that have been breached and know it and those that have been breached and don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that, you know, you, I don't think people really believe that at the time. Mm -hmm. And now they do. Um, yeah. And that's a fundamental just change in, uh, in how people think about uh, cybersecurity and what kind of technologies are going to need. So much in cyber was about prevent, prevent, prevent. 
I would argue now it's more about detect, contain, remediate. Yeah. Um, and, and it's mostly because of that, that high-level belief in, um, in, in how people are, are shifting. So if you look at that as the backdrop, um, I think you're going to see a, a lot more uh, around this whole area of uh, how am I going to find a breach when I've been breached? How am I going to contain it? How am I going to remediate it? What are the new methodologies for doing that? And different people have different points of view about that. I certainly have mine. Um, and then uh, uh, there used to be a lot spent on network security, and there still will be. But the belief that people are going to be on your network and on your systems are leading people to actually try and protect the information itself because um, that's ultimately what the bad guys want is the data and the information. So I think you're going to see a more data-centric approach uh, for securing systems as, as well, uh, which is a, a, a shift, um, another, another change. And then an area that I believe is just getting started and is going to be fascinating to watch is going to be, you know, for lack of a better word, I'll call it pre uh, preemption. Um, or another way to look at it is how to change the fundamental economics of what it means to be a bad guy. Um, mm -hmm. I, I always like to joke that, you know, it's a pretty good gig. You can wake up, be in your pajamas, walk into your kitchen, uh, do a little bit of hacking, and make a few million dollars before uh, lunchtime. Um, and it's a very scalable model with high margins to be a bad yep. guy. And, yep. and I think a lot of a lot of energy and technology and time is going to have to be going into how to fundamentally change how it, uh, the economics work on being a hacker, a bad hacker that is, um, and and make it not such a high margin business, uh, so that hopefully these people decide they they uh, would would rather you know go into uh, retail or or something else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, even if it, even if it's re retail criminal behavior, I would rather that than uh, than, than okay. industrial scale. So yeah. w one of the things that we see here at at, at CNAS is a, a blurring of of the sort of neat twentieth century distinctions of uh, military technology and commercial technology. Um, I'd be interested in, in in your take on that and 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 what the implications are um, to, to to businesses that start with a commercial focus uh, have have more advantages in going after uh, previously uh, conceived national security problems or, or do startups coming out of uh, a, a more focused national security context have advantages as they pivot to commercial sectors? How, how do you see that playing out? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the reality is there's no one right answer to your, to your question. Most of what Silicon Valley is focused on is building companies that can address commercial issues but then could also address issues as experienced by the intelligence community, the Department of Defense. And I say it in that order. Um, and uh, there's reasons for that, which we, we can get into. But I also would sort of say there's exceptions to that. And let's, let's go pick on um, drone technology, which mm -hmm. obviously has, has uh, been very fully developed inside the military purposes. But now you see it becoming extremely popular in the commercial sector. And I would say it's a derivative of, uh, of one or the other. And now I think probably they'll start sharing. Um, and uh, it'll be quite iterative as to uh, where the innovation's coming from. Um, and so I, I actually think each, each market can help the other um, quite a bit um, in, in, in their own ways. But rest assured, most of the startups tend to 
uh, want to make sure that they can solve commercial problems because the commercial marketplace ultimately is a lot larger. Um, yep. uh, you know, if you can if you can sell into the global 2000, uh, that's great, and and maybe that 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 ends up you know of a of a healthy business that ends up making up eighty uh, percent of your 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 sales versus selling into federal governments might be closer to twenty percent of your sales. Um, and you need the, you you, you got to do whatever modifications you you may or may not want to do uh, for those um, for those defensive purposes. And once again, those are those are decisions that an entrepreneur has to make. And um, the harder those decisions are, uh, the, a, a lot of times the entrepreneur is not going to make them. Uh, you know, yeah. because you you don't really want to be doing one-offs for uh, for a customer. You want to be able to develop once and sell many times. Absolutely. And so, for, from from your perspective as an investor, is the the drive to the commercial sector uh, purely about scale, um, or are there other factors just in terms of uh, creating shareholder value? Are there more opportunities in that sector? Are margins healthier? How do those dynamics play out? Well, I mean, you know, I, I guess ultimately it is about you know, if you're a technology company, you need to build things, you need to sell things. It's, um, and so uh, you're you're going to go where the 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 you know ultimately where the money is and where the customers are, um, uh, which uh, you know especially in the world of cybersecurity, it's very rare a cybersecurity company doesn't start by selling into the financial services sector. Probably the mm-hmm. most sophisticated of buyers in in uh, uh, in technology um, and have a high interest in the security of their systems. Uh, so they make very good initial customers. Um, and and they're willing to to uh, spend money to uh, to buy the technology, um, and so you, you're gonna you you certainly see uh, the the startup world and the entrepreneurial world uh, focus on on the commercial sector uh, because they can get good growth and uh, they tend to be extremely large. Uh, if you if you were to focus purely on uh, the DoD as as a for instance. Uh, one, your sales cycles would be amazingly long, and we can talk about that if, if, if you'd like to. Um, and your upside would be capped. Um, you also don't get valued by uh, the public markets or acquirers as high um, if your marketplace is purely the, 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 the federal space. And you know, you know, keep keep in mind we're we're all shareholders, and our goals are to maximize shareholder value um, mm-hmm. while building companies of significance. And so I think that's a particularly interesting point. One of the things that, that, that we see, exactly as you say, is that um, for, for defense industry, when they're looking to value um, uh, a, a corporation for acquisition, they do it in a very different way than a, a venture capital firm or, 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 or like going to exit via IPO or something like that. Um, and yet we've seen in the cyberspace, um, Raytheon making acquisitions of, of, of companies you've invested in. Just be interested in your thoughts for entrepreneurs as, they're, as they are raising capital. What are the implications for them if their exit is more likely going to be defense-focused relative to um, a, a broader commercial focus and a different valuation? How, how, how do you think they should negotiate that or think about it? Yeah, I, I would not say the DIB is one of the highest-paying uh, groups out there. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, it's, one, they, they, their companies themselves, uh, the ones that are public, um, trade at just lower multiples 
uh, than a lot of commercial companies. Um, and so as a result, they have different pricing pressures that are put on them. Um, a lot of that is because they're so manpower intensive, um, meaning that it, it, they use so many people that it, it affects margins um, uh, of, of their businesses, um, and they don't get quite the same leverage and efficiency that a commercial company gets by leveraging uh, maybe more technology and less people. So it's, it's not about billable hours, um, uh, et cetera. But as a result, it just lowers their overall multiples uh, versus in the, in the commercial sector, if you'd, especially you know, uh, commercial software companies, which have extremely high growth rates, um, very high margins, and as a result, enjoy better multiples from Wall Street so they can afford to pay more. And that is, that's just a, that is a reality. You, you are right. Um, uh, many, many years ago, we did sell a company called Oakley Networks to, to Raytheon. Um, and, you know, you know it's, it's interesting, probably from Raytheon's standpoint, they, they paid an uncomfortable price. And from our standpoint, you know, they paid a really low price. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. everything's in the, uh, uh, the, eye, the eye of the beholder. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I would I, find a little story about this. I'd say... Uh, I don't know, sometime in the last seven years, um, uh, a well-known uh, head of, uh, of one of the system integrators for the government came out to visit me and wanted to talk about cybersecurity technologies, et cetera, and said they want to get into the acquiring game and, and buy, you know, buy some, some technology companies to really build their portfolio. I said, this is great. Um, uh, let's talk about that. I said, how, how much money do you have set aside for this? And he said, we have a lot. Um, you know, the, the board has authorized it, and we, you know, we have $200 million set aside for this. Yeah. And, and, and in my mind, I'm, I'm sitting there going, well, for $200 million, we're not going to be able to buy a whole lot, um, mm-hmm. you know, out uh, in, in the way that these startups get valued uh, ultimately. Um, and so it's, a, it's a, uh, just a very different perspective uh, when we can get seven to ten times trailing 12-month revenue as a valuation for some of these companies sometimes. Uh, so, you know, if you're doing $10 million in revenue, I could, you know, you, you might be worth 70 to $100 million um, uh, or, or more. And that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, not, a, it's, it's not understood uh, by, by a lot of folks in, uh, in the Washington circles that that's, uh, that, that's what the, the premium these companies can command. No, I, I think that that's one of the, the, the key challenges um, for the department as it seeks to figure out what value it can provide to startups. It's not necessarily going to be capital. Um, I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts in, in, in what value the department can provide. There's a lot of discussion in Washington right now about incentives. Uh, it's one of those easy ways to sound smart. Oh, you've got to get the incentives right. Um, but we don't say in practical terms what those might be for a startup. Uh, for example, Nate, Nate, Fick and I have had this conversation that one of the most useful things that the DOD can provide to an early stage startup is long-term contracts because then that's annual recurring revenue and that's actually more valuable than, than, than putting just straight capital into the organization because it increases the multiple at which they can argue for uh, with, with VCs or, or whomever else. Um, so I'd just be interested in, in, in your take on that. Yeah, well, look, the, uh, I, there's a few things that um, if you're the DOD, you, you would focus on. What uh, is your goal is to get access to the latest and greatest technologies to solve the problems that you have today and the ones you're going to have in the future. Um, and, and when the machinery gets in the way of that, that's a problem. 
Um, and so in, in particular, the acquisition rules and how acquisitions work. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I can do a sales cycle in the commercial sector, and sometimes it's under two weeks. You know, a normal one might be three to four months. Uh, where you start the sales cycle, you make the sales call, you, you get into a, a pilot, and you you know, and you're, you're closing the sale, and the money's in the bank, and in three four months, a really long one might be six months. You know, in inside of DoD, you can be at it for a couple years. You know, the, the technology's gone out of date by the time they've made a purchase decision. Um, well, they haven't and, even set the requirements yet. They, they, you've got to get the requirements right first, Ted. That'll take at least a year. And then after that, right. you can well, start thinking about the technology. Well, absolutely. <laughs> and then, and then you, you realize this, even within the behemoth of the DOD, there's all these different groups that don't talk to one another. Um, and they tend to all have the same requirements. So for each one of them, uh, they're starting over. And it's, it's, it's kind of ludicrous in a, in a company. And if you look at the DOD as the world's largest company, Right. I mean, there's there's a uh, you know, I, I know a lot, a lot of folks, but there's they're, they're really a collection of very large companies um, yeah. and that's how they operate. And maybe that's the, the right way. But you should it, it, to get some level of efficiency. So if you've had one division that's already done an evaluation for a particular need, share it <laughs> so you can yeah. you can kind of cut through the BS and get to a uh, an end result faster. People should be highly incented to make it happen and happen fast. And by the way, happen as inexpensively as possible. Um, there's a lot of waste that goes on uh, in, uh, in, in all areas of this. Uh, and I think Nate is certainly right. You, you, the, 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 uh, any one of these uh, groups has the ability to offer uh, long-term subscription-oriented contracts to, uh, to these companies. Um, which builds a great relationship uh, and allows them to be a, a, a good, a good long-term customer. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I just think a lot of attention just to be spent around acquisitions, procurement, why they're doing it, how they're doing it, and with the goal of speed, efficiency, um, and rewarding getting technology uh, implemented and deployed as fast as possible. Uh, uh, would be uh, would go a long, long way to making the government a great customer. That makes a lot of sense to me. It, it, it sounds like you may have been talking to, uh, or you definitely you've, you've had a mind melt with the guys on the House Armed Services Committee, uh, who have taken that exact theme for this year's uh, National Defense Authorization Act. Um, uh, now, Ted, it, it's clear just from 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 the last couple of minutes that you spent a fair amount of time thinking about. DOD and uh, national security uh, government organizations and technology. That comes from your time at InQtel um, and also your time with perhaps a, a little known program called the Da Vinci program, which I remember from, from when I was uh, doing some work with ATNL a few years ago. Um, so this was um, really the DOD trying to collaborate with startups uh, before it got cool um, a couple of years ago. I'd just be interested if, if you could sort of su summarize what that program was and, and what your experiences were there, what was good, what didn't work out, and sort of what you took from that. Sure. Um, so Da Vinci um, got started, actually, with a conversation between the Secretary Rumsfeld and uh, John Kasich, who's now the governor of Ohio. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, this was when uh, Governor Kasich was no longer in Congress, and he, he was out and about, and he wanted to figure out how to 
what he could do to help um, the country in its fight, um, uh, you know, post 9-11. And, uh, and Rumsfeld basically said, we need to be able to figure out a way to get technology into our warfighters' hands as fast as possible. And that was kind of the mandate. And, um, uh, you know, Governor Kasich, uh, with his uh, relationships with a couple different venture folks, um, uh, pulled me into, uh, into the opportunity with him and, uh, and a few others. And basically what we would do is we would find a theme. And let's pick on cybersecurity since that's what we're talking about. And we would go interview the various constituents inside of the Department of Defense and actually, uh, uh, it was mostly inside of DOD, uh, to find out what their needs were. Literally, this is why I would, I would spend, you know, a couple days with, with my compatriots uh, interviewing these different groups. And then we would put on um, about a day and a half sort of symposium that comprised different startups as well as speakers to address those exact problems. And I can tell you the only rule that we had was the only people that could attend this thing were people that could make purchase decisions. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, do not, do not give us a group of people that want to go check the list uh, of, uh, hey, I, I got to hang out with a bunch of entrepreneurs and, and you know, check um, what wasn't that good. No, no. The, these um, had to be people uh, that actually direct line of sight budget to solve these problems. Otherwise, we had no interest in talking to them. That's great, and, Ted. Uh, I, 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 I should say um, the, the good folks, uh, so it was on the good uh, sort of uh, DOD expatriates in, in, in the Valley have come up with a term for what you are trying to avoid now, which is technology tourists. Um, so, <laughs> so you're absolutely right. You should need to avoid that and actually speak to people who can get stuff done. But I uh, apologize yeah. for interrupting. For about two years or so, uh, Da Vinci was pretty effective. Um, uh, there was technology that, got tr uh, that went through you know, the, all the right channels and everything, but it got discovered quick. Uh, it got incorporated quick. Um, and and solved a lot of real problems, um, some of which we were allowed to know about and some of which we weren't allowed to know about. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, it, you know, it, it, it felt very good that we were able to solve problems on behalf of the government. It didn't take a lot of us. It didn't take a whole lot of money. And it didn't take a whole lot of resources from the DOD. It just took a group of people knowing, one, that the, the Secretary Rumsfeld wanted it to happen, uh, and two, others not getting in the way um, and wanting to facilitate it. Uh, and... You know, um, what did, you know, what did I learn from it? Uh, at the time, Da Vinci didn't have the name Da Vinci. It had no name. Um, so what I, what I learned was as soon as you name a program and actually have a budget, that's probably the sure sign you're going to get killed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, da Vinci was no different. Da Vinci, I think, still might exist in some form or fashion or another. I, I, I don't even know anymore. But uh, it kind of lost its potency uh, uh, after a while. There was, uh, you know... Congress decided it needed more oversight. It shut it down for a little while. Whenever it reconstituted itself, it was never the same. Um, but it was, it was basically a group of people just coming together to try and solve some problems. Um, and I think it was great. You know, I, uh, honestly, around the same time that Da Vinci was getting started is when Incutel got started. Um, yeah. Incutel just did it far more methodically uh, and in a more sophisticated manner. Um, obviously started from the intelligence community side of life. Um, and I think is a, a fantastic example of a successful public-private uh, enterprise that, that's come together that has benefited so many agencies inside the government. Um, and uh, 
uh, you know, and, and should be applauded for uh, for all their efforts. I, I, I completely agree. So, so, so given um, your experience with DaVinci and with InQtel, uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on, on, on DIUX uh, as a construct. Um, what are your thoughts on, on its, uh, its existence, its mission, how it's going about business uh, based on your experiences elsewhere? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's funny. I, um, uh, you know, Raj Shah, who now runs DIUX, uh, I have a lot of respect for, and uh, uh, I have high hopes that it's, it's, it'll find its footing and, and get, into, uh, get into the right flow here in the Valley. But I, 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 I found originally when it was being announced, um, I, I kind of thought it was peculiar because it's kind of it's kind of cool for every large government organization to want to open up shop here in Silicon Valley. I always scratch my head about it to some extent because you can easily see it being a great boondoggle for for somebody in D.C. to say, "Hey, I get to go go to the Valley for 18 months or 24 months, whatever." Which is, of course, mm-hmm. is no way to get yourself ingrained in how things work here. You know, you, you're going to have to be here for, for a while. But uh, I, I would also say that um, what, what I've always found strange about it was, why is it that the folks in Washington just don't use Google a little bit more to go find the solutions to the problems they're having? Uh, it, it, meaning that, you know, they, they need to set up a large organization to find new technology, yet if you just did a search, you probably could find the names of the five or six companies that can solve the problem you have. Uh, I'm, I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here when, when I say this, but it, it, there is a lot of this where um, you, don't, you don't have to be out here <laughs> to, to do mm-hmm. some of these things. You just got to let the startup community know who to call on. And, you know, uh, you know, who, you know if, I, if, I have, if I can solve this particular problem, just tell me who to call on in your organization and then just don't make it a, a, a pain in the neck for me to, uh, to help try and help service you. Um, in the commercial world, you got chief information officers, you got chief security officers. I know lots of them. They convene a lot. They want, the, you know, that's, that's, you know, you can call, they'll then refer you to the right person in their organization. And it's a, it's a, it's a pretty streamlined process because they want it to be. Yeah. All right. So I'm a tech company. Who should I call on at, at DOD? Who should I call upon at Air Force? Who should I call upon at Navy? Make it well known and make it a super easy process to both access and get through any kind of evaluation cycle. You'll have gone through, you'll have solved, you know, 85% of the issues. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I've, I'm, I'm in a similar place to you where, first off, I have, I have a very high opinion of Raj as well. I think he's excellent. Um, the, the other thing, and, and my colleague Lauren, when I wrote a paper on this a couple of months ago, is that anytime you see something like the DIUX or the Joint IED Defeat Organization or any of these new organizations, it's the department trying to come up with a workaround to the core system because they don't believe that they can get the core system to do what they want for that particular problem. Uh, and, and ultimately, the answer needs to be, we need to just get our business as usual process to a place where we can just incorporate startups or whatever it is um, in, in a sensible fashion. But that's hard for us to do for a whole bunch of reasons, mm-hmm. which, is, which is frustrating. So, so stepping, stepping back from, from what the department might do, I'd, I'd be interested in, in sort of philosophically, what value do you think it is that startups in particular provide to the DOD um, or other government agencies? 
we've talked a little bit about what the DoD can provide to startups in turn on, in terms of ARR or uh, stability, those kind of things. But what is it that, that you think startups really provide um, in this context? Speed of innovation. Yep. You know, startups have no choice but to operate at very fast pace uh, because if they don't, they die. Um, and so if you want um, a, a lot of innovation very quickly in uh, you know, some of the latest and greatest areas, uh, the startup community and the whole innovation economy is perfect. And you know, here in this country, you know, we, we created this, and uh, we should leverage it. In a, in a way, it's like the, uh, the, the country's R&D group. Uh, you know, and we have great programs inside of uh, inside the government with DARPA and, and other places to help fund uh, real basic research. But eventually, you got to commercialize it. It's got to come out of the university system. It's got to come out of the government think tanks, and it's got to get into some commercial hands if it's going to be sustainable. Um, and uh, it it the, the whole startup community, as 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 I said, I I think becomes the the R and D lab for uh, for the federal government. Um, and uh, the, the missing link, as we've been discussing, is just the, the ability to get that technology in the right people's hands in a timely manner. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in what ways, then, do you think that, that startups focused on national security-related problems or, or that are founded by people coming out of national security organizations, NSA, DOD, whatever, how are they different from uh, regular startups, or, or, or are they different? Well, it's interesting. I just think lines get blurred, you know, um, in the sense that if, uh, you could argue a network's a network's a network's a network. A server's a server's a server's server. An app's an app, an app's an app, right? And we've got to protect it all. Data's data. Um, we've got to protect these systems. And, um, you know, what's the difference between, uh, you know, what's a, uh, J.P. Morgan's the largest bank in the world, right, I think. Point. I don't know. Maybe Citibank is. Uh, but you know, what's the difference between their systems and networks uh, than you know one of the groups inside of DoD? Um, and you know, if you if you could if you can protect those systems and networks and applications and data in in one of those very sophisticated uh, multinational company companies, you probably could apply a lot of that same technology to any of the systems inside the, the federal government. So I actually think the line sort of gets blurred from from that standpoint. I where I have found it a little bit more interesting on, on some of the synergies are around the people. Um, yeah. I think three out of the last four startups that I have uh, been associated with funding um, are, uh, are folks ex-NSA. Um, and, uh, and they've been great entrepreneurs. Um, you mentioned General Alexander with IronNet, but uh, I got Jay Kaplan and Mark Kerr at Synac and uh, Orrin Falkowitz at uh, Area One, um, and you know, as you pointed out, Nate Fick is ex-military, and um, there's some great, great training that that comes out of uh, out of the government. And I, I actually think the government can be an amazing feeder mechanism uh, for the the future, especially in the world of cybersecurity. Uh, you could ha- you could create a a a, 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 a wonderful way to. Uh, to incent students at the university level to uh, become experts in the world of cybersecurity, go work in a federal program for a few years, and come back out into the commercial sector to maybe found a company or just work in a big multinational company. And by doing this and creating a, a, a 
kind of a, make this programmatic. Um, I could even see using government funds to fund uh, these students while they're in college. Uh, I think you'll make the, the country a whole lot safer, um, yeah. as well as get top talent um, into needed uh, federal programs. Uh, absolutely. And, and one of the big things that, that folks are worried about is recruiting and retaining talent for, for cybersecurity, especially when uh, they feel that they're not going to be able to provide the level of income that, that, that um, uh, people might be able to get in, in a private sector organization. So I, I think you're completely right. But you know what? I, I still yep. believe that um, the, the right programs can, because of the mission, can get some of the top college students if they wanted to, especially obviously if they help fund their, their education, uh, to yep. come spend three, four, five years there before going out into the commercial sector. And by the way, I, I think the federal program should applaud it. They got to get used to the fact that people are not going to come and, and be lifers. Uh, exactly. But they could get three to five wonderful years from these great young talents um, to, to, uh, to do great things for the country during that time and then put them forth into, into the commercial world and celebrate their successes. Bring them back in as guest speakers to their, to, to their existing programs and not be fearful of it. Um, I, I've given a bunch of talks inside of different agencies to, uh, on uh, environments that they should have to attract great talent and retain great talent. Um, and they just can't be fearful of commercial success by them. They should applaud it and uh, celebrate it. Right, or th that they could even purchase the products made by those people later yeah. in life. Imagine that. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> um, so Ted, conscious of time, um, I, I just want to ask you one, one last question. Uh, you, you invest in a lot of startups and, and the individuals who run them. What advice, uh, general advice, do you have for founders of startups in this national security space? As we talked a little about earlier, I do think you need to think about in serving dual purpose. Um, I, I think the mission uh, and the, the, the byproduct of being able to serve national security is great. It's wonderful. It's certainly part of what drives me. I truly would like to make this country as safe as possible. I'd like to make our allies as safe as possible. But I do know that making sure that I have uh, commercial backing uh, will enable me to, uh, to realize uh, a better sense of how I can help national security. Meaning I, I, I don't think just trying to serve national security for national security's sake is the right route. Um, you're going to end up uh, having to make sure you, you solve a real problem uh, it probably addresses a, a commercial problem, and it may also address a national security problem. Uh, and I, I think you've got to think about it like that. Um, and, uh, look, I, I very often give entrepreneurs the advice of, uh, you know, for your first 20 customers, one of them should not be the federal government. <laughs> it's just it's <laughs> too distracting. It takes too long. Get, get, you know, get your 20 customers under your belt that are Global 2000 companies that help you shape the product, that can react quickly, help you with great fast turns of, of feedback, uh, we're willing to work with you, being flexible, understand the ups and downs and the vagaries of the startup environment before you go ahead and, and try and approach uh, uh, one of the federal agencies. Um, and, uh, you know, usually they will take that advice because, um, look, it's lower hanging fruit. Um, they, they need purchase orders to survive. Um, and so, uh, uh, so I, as I said, I think you've got to design your company so that uh, you, you can uh, solve uh, great commercial problems 
while having the ability to also serve your country. Um, and uh, I, I think that's where you see the great companies today. Um, they, they span both of them. I think that's fantastic advice. Well, Ted, th thank you for the work that you've done um, with the intelligence community, with the Department of Defense, uh, in addition to all these companies. And thanks for speaking with us today. It's been a great conversation. Ben, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. To hear more from the National Security Startup Series, go to startups.cnas.org or search for CNAS on iTunes or SoundCloud.